Now, many of you will know that the Rio Olympics, the Summer Olympics in Brazil, just finished. And we followed that kind of news with various kinds of interests, depending upon what your interests are or are not. But one of the things that you cannot deny is that it takes a lot of work to be able to compete at that level. It is the pinnacle of each sport. And even if someone is not to win a particular medal, just competing at that level is a prize in and of itself. The Olympics take place about every four years. And so those athletes must prepare themselves. They must work hard. They must diligently discipline themselves to pursue a particular goal for at least four years. Actually, many of them have been pursuing that goal and working hard in that direction for a decade or more. But can you imagine? Can you imagine with me for a moment if an athlete had been working that hard, had been working for years to be able to compete at that level? Striving, disciplining themselves, keeping a disciplined exercise regime, a disciplined diet, denying themselves things because they are working towards a particular goal. And really, right before they get the fruits of their labor, they say, no, no, thank you. Can you imagine if an athlete had worked that long and one week before the Olympic Games, having made the team, having been ready to compete in the Games, they say, no, I'm not interested. I've worked this hard, I've worked this long, and I'm about to receive the fruits of my labor to compete at that level. But no, I'm not interested. Count me out. I'm tired. I'm ready to go home. And you would say with me, if that were to happen, that's ludicrous. Who would work that hard? Who would push that long? Who would be that disciplined? Who would be that focused? Who would be that dedicated? And then not want to receive the fruit of that. The reward that comes from that. Who would do that? Sometimes we do that. As believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have claimed Him, sometimes we do that. We get down the road a little bit in this thing we call the Christian life, and we've been doing good, we've been obeying God, but sometimes, for some weird reason, we just say, ah, that's enough. You know, the people aren't responding the way they should, people aren't listening the way they should, I'm not seeing the fruits and the blessings that I wanted to see, and so I'm tired, I'm done. Really? Today in our text, we will be reminded that we must be careful to persist in doing the good that we have been called to do. We cannot get tired. We cannot give up. Our text is warning us against that. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This passage is written to warn Christians that despite their Christian freedom, they cannot live however they choose. Rather, they must understand, they must remember the foundational spiritual principle that you reap what you sow. And our text this morning will outline for us three ways to do this. Outline for us three steps that we need to take in order to persist in doing the good that we have been called to do. 
And the first step is in verse 7. We are to reject the lie of the world. It says we are to not be deceived. This phrase is important. It immediately implies the potential of being deceived. See, we like to think that we are an educated, intelligent people. And we're believers, of course, so we know the truth. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing to a group of believers and he says, do not be deceived. Warning them about the possibility that they can be deceived. And he phrases this somewhat like a command. There's an action that needs to be taken. Because he doesn't just say, watch out, you can be deceived. He actually says, do not be deceived. Which means that there's an onus, which means that there's a responsibility on the individual to be careful, to understand the truth the way they need to understand it so that they are not deceived. But deceived by whom? Deceived about what? We must be careful that we are not deceived into thinking that it does not matter how I live. We cannot buy the lie that it only matters if I have my get-out-of-jail-free card. It only matters if I've, if I've said the prayer and I'm going to heaven. It doesn't really matter how I live. It only matters that I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth that it does not matter how a believer lives her, his or her life. It does matter. You have been saved for a purpose. You have been called to do good works. And it is a lie from the very mouth of Satan that it doesn't matter how you live. See, John 8.44 reminds us that Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. Oh, we know that Satan lies to the world at large. Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelieving. But simply because we became a Christian, a true believer in Jesus Christ, does not mean that Satan has, con- has stopped trying to continually oppose the work of God in our lives. He will continue to lie to you. And one of the primary ways he does it is by saying, okay, you're going to heaven, so no big deal. You've experienced grace. You just live however you want. Our passage directly addresses that. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Nothing can be further from the truth than a believer in Jesus Christ can live however they want. And it doesn't have consequences. It does have consequences. For God is not mocked. In fact, one author writes, you are terribly deceived if you think that God does not deal severely with sin in the lives of his children. God deals with us because we are his children. And as any good father, he pays attention. And he wants us to live in the way he has called us to live. But for many of you, in fact, fact, for most of you here today, that's not a surprise that God wants you to obey and love and follow him. You know that you should. So why then are we not careful? Why Why are we so susceptible to deception? Jeremiah 17, verse 9, gives us an inkling. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, even after our salvation in Jesus Christ, our hearts are somewhat fickle and untrustworthy. We cannot trust ourselves. Rather, we must trust the Lord and we must trust His Word. We must be careful that we do not all too easily agree with the lies of Satan and the world. Now, I know probably very few of you in this room have actually stood 
and addressed God and said, that's it, God, I think I can live however I want and you don't care. It's not how we act. It is a more subtle thing. See, because to stand up and say, it's that, no, God, I'm done, although that may have happened to a few, that's not being deceived. That's open rebellion. What this passage tells us is that we should not be deceived. The idea, of, the idea of being deceived is that you got trapped. You didn't know what was happening. You thought you were doing something that was permissible, even blessed, and then you turned around and you found, oh, this isn't right. We must be careful that we do not take the idea of Christian liberty and turn it into a license for sin. See, the Bible uh, in this particular portion in Galatians has been called the charter or the manifesto of Christian freedom. In fact, Galatians chapter 5 Verse 13 says, you were called to freedom, brethren. We have been called to freedom in Jesus Christ. But Galatians 5.13 goes on to say, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, it can be our temptation to believe the lie. Not on purpose, not deliberately rejecting the truth of the word, but we get tired. We get pushed. There's temptation and pressure. And so we slowly, subtly begin to believe the lie that we really shouldn't believe. And sometimes we even go so far as to say, look, God is glorified in salvation, right? God is glorified when he is to manifest his grace before the world to save a rotten sinner. And if God is glorified in salvation, then he will receive glory if I continue to ask him for forgiveness and and use that grace. It is true that God will get glory whenever he exercises his grace, but we cannot buy that lie. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 addresses this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He responds with a resounding, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it. We have to be careful that we do not buy that lie. Because you know what? People who say they love Jesus Christ very often live as if they don't know Him at all. And they somehow think that that's okay. Because they have been deceived. And so the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes to us to remind us to be careful that we are not deceived because that is the potential that we must guard against. The first step is that we must reject the lie of the world. The second step that we are to take so that we might do the good that we ought to do is that we are to remember God's unchanging spiritual principle. We are to remember God's unchanging spiritual principle. See, God is not mocked. Why? Because God has established a principle that cannot be changed. A spiritual law that cannot be violated. And it's in verse 7 and 8. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This is written by God. This is unchanging, inviolable. What you sow, you will also reap. The same thought is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, if you know the context, of course, the context of that passage is about giving. But it's the same principle that God has laid down. He's just applying it in different areas. The principle of reaping and sowing is one that we cannot deny. It operates in our lives whether we want it to or not. 
Now, the principle of reaping and sowing is obviously drawn out of the agricultural world. It's where it finds its roots, as it were. Now, growing up, before we moved to the great state of Missouri, my family actually lived in North Carolina. But what was significant is that every summer, we got in the, the big van, and we drove from North Carolina up into Indiana. Why? Because in Indiana, my great uncle had a farm, a very busy farm. All kinds of activities took place on this farm, but perhaps the most visible part of that farm life was the growing of corn. As far as I could see in every direction from my great uncle's house, there was nothing but corn. And so what did he do? In planting time, he planted corn. And in reaping time, or harvest time, he harvested corn. Now, there were challenges, as there are in any business and as there are on many farms, and I'm sure there were times when my great-uncle laid awake at night worrying about what was going to happen. Because he didn't know. But you know, there's one thing I know he never laid, awake, never laid awake at night worrying about. And you know what that was? He never, ever, for once, laid awake at night worrying that the seed he had planted as corn was going to come up as squash. Because that doesn't happen. What you sow is what you reap. He planted corn. He harvested corn. He didn't plant corn and harvest something else. Now, obviously, in our verse in chapter 8, or sorry, in, in chapter 6, verse 8, Paul is not talking about corn. He's not talking about squash. He's not talking about any produce of the earth. Rather, he is making a point on a spiritual level. Spiritually speaking, the process is similar in our own lives. Let me say it this way. The kind of seed that is sown is a faithful predictor of the kind of harvest that will be forthcoming in your life. The kind of seed that is sown is a faithful indicator of the kind of harvest that you will reap. Verse 8 says that the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. Now that flesh is that thing that believers still struggle with. It is the sin that still remains. It is those desires, those impulses that are contrary to the will of God that even after our salvation, we struggle against. And the apostle also had these struggles. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Even after we have been regenerated, we struggle with the residual sin in this life. And we must and we will until we are completely sanctified and glorified in the presence of the Lord. But it is one thing, one thing to struggle against those desires. It is something else entirely to sow to those desires, to sow to the flesh, therefore, is to allow those evil desires, to allow those wrong passions to remain in my heart and life, to take root there and to flourish. And when I allow sin to remain, rather than dealing with it quickly and biblically, I am sowing to the flesh. One author wrote it this way. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, to nurse a grievance, to entertain an impure fancy, to wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. 
Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And sowing to the flesh brings about corruption. Corruption is like rotten fruit. Corruption is decay. It brings nothing good. Like rotten fruit that is undesirable and unpleasant and has no real value, so is corruption or the results of sowing to the flesh in our life. If we allow that sin to remain, the only thing that we are going to get back is something that is undesirable, unpleasant, and has ultimately no lasting value. Now, we cannot deny that there are temporary pleasures that happen from sin. That's why we indulge it. But the long-term benefits of sin in our lives ultimately will bring corruption. Something that brings us nothing of value. Something that does not bless our life at all. It may seem good for the moment, but there's never the favor of the Lord and there's never true blessing in the life of the believer if they choose to persist in sin. See, the opposite of sowing to the, the, to the flesh, though, is sowing to the Spirit, as it's mentioned here. It says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. To sow to the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit. It is to be preoccupied with the things of God. It is to please God by consciously and consistently submitting to Him in every area of my life through obedience to His revealed will, which is His Word. Now, there are some who understand Galatians 6, 8 here to be talking primarily about salvation. Because it says if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. There are some who understand that this is indicative of a life that has never been surrendered to God and so results in corruption. And when they then repent that first time, God gives them for the reward of their belief eternal life. Although this view may have some merit, ultimately the context favors a different view. If you're still in Galatians, look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 starts out very clearly. It says, brethren, or it could even be brothers and sisters. He's clearly talking to those who he believe are believers, or at least they claim to be. But more than that, he says, if any one of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual. So not only is he writing to those who are assumed to be believers, he is writing to those who might also be called mature believers. So the Apostle Paul is certainly not telling people who have been in Christ for some time and have matured in Jesus that they need to repent unto salvation and gain this reward of eternal life for the first time. That makes no sense. See, what happens, the reason this passage can initially be confusing is because at times we get confused about what eternal life is. And we focus on that word eternal because it lasts for a long time. And we talk about existing forever. Let me remind you that everybody who has ever been created will have eternal existence. You see, eternal existence is not unique to believers in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is. But everyone, including the unbeliever, has eternal existence. For the unbeliever will exist forever and ever being punished under the wrath of God for his rejection of the Messiah. What makes eternal life so great isn't that it's eternal, or I should say maybe isn't only that it's eternal. It's the quality of that life. It's not duration, but it's the quality. 
John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that we that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is about who you know. It is about the quality of life that comes from the relationship that you have with your God. Do you know Him in a loving, saving relationship because you have trusted by grace and grace alone that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and therefore you are truly one of His children and you have experienced the blessing that comes with that relationship and you are in eternal life or have you rejected Him? See, that is the difference. Not how long you exist, but how you exist and who you know. And so here in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 8, it says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. To say it another way, the one who persists in obeying God, because remember, the Word of God is written by the Spirit of God. So the one who persists in obeying and walking with God will reap the benefits of ever-increasing intimacy with their God and Savior. You see, you are experiencing eternal life now. Now, it's going to be better when there are no vestiges of sin remaining, but you're experiencing eternal life now, and you can experience more of that, meaning a closer relationship with your God, deeper blessings that come from knowing Jesus Christ more and more intimately, if you will sow to the Spirit, if you will walk by the Spirit, if you will consciously and consistently, consistently submit your life to Him in obedience to His Word. This is the law of sowing and reaping. On the one hand, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. On the other hand, if you sow to the Spirit, you get the blessing of walking with your God in a greater and greater relationship. And we are deceived if we think that doesn't work in our life as well. At times we kind of tend to think that things don't apply to us. For some reason, we just believe. Now, none of us would ever for a moment believe that gravity doesn't apply to us. We know, we know it does. But even more unchanging than that, than the law of gravity, is this spiritual principle. And we are deceived if we think that we can allow sin to persist in our lives and there will be no ill consequences. And we are deceived if we think that we can walk in sin and still receive the blessing of God. Now, my wife and I have the privilege of traveling most of the summer to, to visit different churches, and so we drive a lot. You know, one of the things we see just about everywhere we go in America, it's kind of common. We drive down streets and we see trash cans. Everybody puts their trash out so they can be taken away. Why? Because trash is nasty and that's where it belongs, to be taken away. But what, happens, what would happen if for some reason the garbage man, and I don't know why he would do this, but what would happen if for some reason the garbage man, rather than taking your trash and putting it in his truck and taking it away, he just picked up maybe not the whole can, but maybe just one bag. And he just took that bag, he walked up to your house, opened your door, walked into your house, walked into your bedroom, and just kind of scattered a little bit of that trash around. What would you think? You think that is gross. That is disgusting. That is nasty. Who in their right mind would want to live in trash, especially in an intimate place like their bedroom? Who in their right mind would want to allow sin to infect their relationship with their God? And yet when we allow the garbage of the world to fester, to persist in our lives, that's exactly what we're doing. 
We want to enjoy the blessings of a vibrant Christian life walking with God and yet we've got garbage strewn around our heart and we don't think it's a big deal sometimes. And yet none of you would do that in real life. And look, I lived in the dorms for a while. I know the college dorm rooms, sometimes they get a little funky, but we're talking about a different level here, guys. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking that it's no big deal, that sin is no big deal. And let us be careful not to be deceived also that it's only a big deal if it's a big sin. See, I I haven't uh, murdered anybody in a long time. God must be happy with me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because the more ordinary, mundane sins of laziness, ungratefulness, coveting, and lust are just as damaging, perhaps even more so, because we don't feel the need to throw those out so quickly. But James chapter 4, verse 17 reminds us that, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, even the seemingly innocent omission of doing good is significant. We must remember this principle of reaping and sowing, both on the negative side, but also on the positive. Our text is giving us three simple steps that we need to take in order to do the good that we are called to do. The first is we must reject the lie of the world. It says, do not be deceived. The second is that we must remember God's unchanging principle of sowing and reaping. And the third step is that we must renew our commitment to doing good. It says at the beginning of verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. Losing heart is to become weary to become tired of doing something. And we are commanded not to lose heart, so we don't get to use it as an excuse, which we do sometimes. Sometimes we just say, I'm tired. And we say, yeah, okay, I understand. We've all been tired. But here we are directly commanded not to do that. It says, let us not lose heart. But oh, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to become tired. But you know what? God is gracious. Because God in His graciousness, although He never becomes tired, He recognized that we might become tired, and so He gave us this reminder. He reminds us that we cannot succumb to the temptation to give up. And so when we are tempted, we have a verse here put here by God to remind us that we need, that we need not to lose heart. We need to persist. We need to push on. See, there is good that we should be doing in our lives. And we need to be careful to continue to do that. God is the ultimate standard of good, and His Word tells us what is good. And so it is from His Word that we understand what we should be doing. We should be obeying God's Word in our life, His expressed will in each area of our lives. And for each of us, that might look a little different based upon our life context. Whether you're a parent or a spouse, a college student, a younger person, You are called, clearly commanded to do good. Doing good encompasses everything from evangelism to counseling, from giving to praying and meeting the needs of those who have them. But you know, this passage is not so much focused on a laundry list of what you should do. Rather, the focus is on persisting in doing what you should do. See, but the world pushes back, doesn't it? The world pushes back on someone who would live a holy life. Have you tried to obey God and discovered that? It doesn't take very long living in a world that is unregenerate, that is blinded to the gospel, where you seek to obey God and live a holy life in front of them, to share the gospel as you ought to do, as you ought to imitate your Savior. 
and to discover that that world is pushing back on you, that it does not always love what you are trying to do. And so when the world pushes back, and when Satan whispers that lie at us that we need to give up, we need encouragement. You see, because the Christian life is not simply about gritting your teeth and burying it. It's not like, i got to do more good. It's not what it's like. Rather, you live in grace. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you. And it's the grace that you need to depend upon for every moment of your Christian life. And so when you are discouraged, what do you need? You need to look back at the Savior once again. Rome, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 12, I apologize. You can turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 12. In a very familiar passage. Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The same language. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, do not lose heart. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, do not lose heart. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, when you are tempted to lose heart, it says, look at Jesus. The one who has never succumbed to temptation. The one who persisted in doing the good that God had called him to do his entire life. See, you and I aren't always the best examples because at one time or another, we have succumbed to the flesh. At one time or another, we have given in and failed to obey. But Jesus Christ is different. We look to the author and perfecter of our faith for the encouragement and the grace that we need to persist in doing the good that we have been called to do, to persist in following in his footsteps. Now, we said that this text is not giving us specific acts of good that we ought to do. But what is clearly implied is that we are going to work hard in doing the good that we have called to, been called to do. See, the Holy Spirit used the image of a farmer. I don't know if many of you have a lot of experience on a farm, but I work just a little bit on the farm in Indiana. It's hard work. There's no good farmer who gets to work four days a week and telecommute. Rather, what they do is they are up early and they are working late. And when the apostle wrote this 2,000 years ago, the job of a farmer was even more difficult because there was no such thing as John Deere. There was no technology that assisted the farmer. Rather, he was one who would have had to work the ground with his own hands using only probably a hand implement to help him. And so to call up the image of a farmer was to call up someone who was a hard worker, who knew what it took to get the job done, who persisted even to the point of exhaustion to accomplish his goal. That's what we are called to do. We are called to work hard by the grace of God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it seems that today there's an idea that often floats about in the Christian world, and it's this idea of random acts of kindness. And there's nothing wrong with random acts of kindness. In fact, as believers, as people who love Jesus, our life should be characterized by random, small acts of kindness. But, if we somehow believe, if we are somehow deceived into thinking that those small random acts of kindness have fulfilled my responsibility to do good, we have misunderstood God's plan for us. See, it's not simply about slipping a track here or saying Merry Christmas there or God bless you there, although those are all well and good. 
Rather, the Christian life is very often about working hard in one direction for a long time. And very often, we see that doing good takes a long time to see the results that would come from that. We've witnessed to our neighbor, but they don't know Jesus yet, and so we get tired and discouraged. We've trained our kids for years, and they still don't respond the way we want them to. We've prayed for people. We've given to people. We've worked. We've put in the time. We've done. And yet, we haven't seen what we wanted. And so we want to say, "Ah, that's for a younger generation. Or that's for somebody more excited about Jesus. I've done my time. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We cannot choose to live however we want to live. Because God has a principle. We must also remember that some of the greatest good that has been done for the world has not been accomplished in a moment, in a spontaneous, random act of kindness, or even overnight. Some of the greatest good that the world has ever seen has been the result of long, hard labor, intentionality in a direction over time. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did He come and save the world in a weekend? 33 years of following the Father's will in perfection when He was the only one doing it, obeying God so that He could then accomplish the good that the Father had called Him to do. His ultimate sacrifice came as a result of 33 years of work. The Apostle Paul is another example because he worked for decades to serve the Lord. And sometimes he had the blessings of seeing fruit and the harvest come right away, and at other times, he persisted not knowing what God would bring. See, sometimes it takes a long time before we see a harvest, and that can discourage us. But we must persist. See, I've been in the Middle East for almost five years. It took me four and a half years before I could preach my first sermon in the native tongue. There were days when I was convinced it would never happen. There are those of you who have taught Sunday school for years, who have served in VBS, who have been a mother or father, who have been a faithful neighbor. There are pastors who have gone to seminary. There are elders who have faithfully shepherded the flock. And we don't always get to see the fruits of our labor when and how we want. But that doesn't mean that we should lose heart in doing good. Because if we continue, we see that it says, in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. See, God will send His harvest in due time. Due time is the right time. Due time is the proper time. And when, in, when will it happen? When God has said it will. Let me take you to a passage that bolsters this thought so strongly. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 through 15. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time, or in due time. When is Jesus coming back? Because He is coming back. When is He coming back? In due time. In the proper time. When God has ordained it that He will come back, Jesus will in fact come back. You are staking your life on that. You are staking your eternity on that. That Jesus is coming back in due time. 
And it's the same principle here. When will you see the blessings that come from the good that you were doing? Because many of you are persisting. You are trying to do good. When will you see the blessings of that? In due time. When God wants you to. See, but I want that now. In due time. In His timing. And you see, we might not intend it, but when we begin to doubt that God will not bring about His blessings and the harvest in His timing, you know what we are actually doing? Not on purpose, of course, probably. But what we are actually doing? We are doubting the character of God. See, because God is a faithful God, and this is His Word, and if He says something is going to happen, it must happen, or He is no longer God. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption, because He is God. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap blessing. You will reap the joy of eternal life and all that comes with that. Why? Because He is God and He says it. Do we believe Him? Do you believe Him? See, at times we have a problem. And the Puritan saint John Brown said it this way, Many Christians are like children. They would sow and reap in the same day. Our problem is that we are sometimes children. We are impatient. We do not trust that God will do His work and His timing. You see what we can be like sometimes? Is that we can be like a farmer. A farmer who grabs the seed, who goes out, scratches a little hole with his heel in the ground, throws the seed in it, stomps on it a little bit, puts a little water on it, steps back and goes, well, where is it? I'm tired of waiting. Makes no sense. Any farmer who does that, you would say he doesn't understand how it works. It takes time. Any Christian who gives up because they haven't seen the fruits that they expected to see doesn't understand quite how it works. It takes time. And it's God's timing. See, in one sense, perhaps the athletes that compete in the games have it a little easier because they know on a four-year cycle the games are coming around. We don't know exactly when God will choose to give the blessings that He has promised. But He is a faithful unchanging God. He will do what He has said He will do. We can trust that. We can believe that. And if you don't, how do you even say you trust in Him for salvation? We must be careful not to be deceived into thinking that because we haven't seen what we expected in our timing, that it's okay to give up, to stop running the race that we are running, to stop doing the good that God has called us to do. We cannot be like little children spiritually. Rather, we must patiently understand that there is a God in heaven who knows more than we do. And in His timing, He will do exactly what He wants. And it will be wonderful and it will be great because that's what He does. He gives good gifts to His children. It goes on then to say, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good. You know, we have a unique privilege. And that is to do good in this life. Many of us are longing for heaven. and In one sense, all true believers long for heaven. Because it is a wonderful, joyous opportunity for eternity to be in the presence of God without sin. But you know what? You and I 
have an amazing special opportunity right now. Because you know when you get to heaven, there will be things that you cannot do. Oh, there'll be plenty of things you can do better. We'll sing better. We'll worship with untainted hearts. We'll have perfect fellowship. But there will be things in heaven that we cannot do better. You will never tell another soul about Jesus Christ when you're in heaven because all who are there will already know Him. You have a unique opportunity on this earth to do the good that you've been called to do and it only lasts for a short time. Who will you tell about the Savior? What good will you do? Who will you bless by your sacrifice? Will it be hard? Yes, it will be at times. But there's a gracious Savior and there's the Holy Spirit to give us guidance. There's the Word of God to direct us. Who will you serve? Who will you tell about Jesus Christ? Because you can only do that for a few years. Let me be bold enough to say something. As I look out over this room, I see a variety of ages. Some of you have less time than others. You need to be busy about doing good. And for those of you who are young and you thought, hey, that was funny, none of us know how long we have. We could die tomorrow. This is an opportunity. This life is an opportunity to do something for the eternal glory of God that He has called us to do. Will you waste it? Hey, we're, like it says in James, we're a mist, a vapor. We're here for just a little bit and then we're gone. But while God gives you this gracious opportunity, what will you do with it? You want to spend all of eternity realizing that you squandered the opportunity that God gave you, the precious opportunity to participate in His work? Let us remember that we have an opportunity and we need to do God's work now. It says we need to do it to those who are um, inside the house of faith and those who are outside. All people. We need to do God's work. Now, one thing I should mention here. Neither I nor the Apostle Paul is saying there is no place for rest in the Christian life. There is a place for rest. In fact, it was God himself who set up that principle of rest. In six days he created, on the seventh he rested. Now, does anybody believe that God needed that rest? No. He would not be God if he actually was physically tired and he needed to stop doing his work. In fact, the, the Lord never rests. For if he stopped doing the work that he does and holding this world together, we would be done in a moment. God established the principle of rest for you and I, and so we need it and we must understand it. But quite honestly, very often, the issue isn't whether Christians will rest. The issue is when Christians will get busy about doing the work of God. We sometimes need to get off our spiritual couches and do what God has called us to do. It might be a long, hard road that God has called us on, but He will give us the grace and He will give us the strength to do that. It says about Jesus Christ in Titus chapter 2, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what we are for. We have been redeemed, saved by the blood of Christ so that we can be zealous for good deeds. Zealous means excited, enthusiastic, not a random act of kindness and I'm done, but excited to do the good that God has called me to do, however long I must wait to see the fruit that I wanted to see. And if you have to wait a long time, you're not alone. There was a man that many of you have heard of. His name was William Carey. William Carey arrived in India in 1793 and his desire was to preach Jesus Christ to those who had never heard him. And so he did that. He preached Christ. 
And for seven years, William Carey proclaimed the gospel message faithfully, week after week, month after month, and not a single person came to Christ for seven years. And yet it was on December 28th, in the year 1800, after he'd been there seven years, when William Carey baptized his first Hindu convert in the Ganges River. And then, as we know, God provided a great harvest of souls. Seven years, nothing. And then in due time, God blessed. Do you believe that God will bless you in due time and send the harvest that He has promised? Do you believe that He has an unchanging principle of reaping and sowing? Are you careful to understand that you are susceptible to deception, so you must guard your heart and mind against the lies of the world and Satan, clothing it in the truth so that you might then faithfully do what God has called you to do? We need to understand this principle because as we understand it, we will be encouraged to walk with God in full confidence that He wants to bless our lives and He will in due time.